welcome everyone to Poetry and Conversation. Um, and before we begin, I just want to let you know that we have many wonderful poetry programs at the Pratt year-round. And if you get on our, we have an email list that you can sign up to be on. It's at the in the back tables, and that way you won't miss any of them. For example, um, on April 1st, we have a program called Poems by Heart, where people come and read poetry that they've memorized or just poet poems that they love. Um, and um, in May, we're going to have a reading with Abdul Ali and uh, Venus Thrash, a DC poet. So that should be also really exciting. But um, we're very pleased tonight to welcome um, Stephen Leva, John A. Nieves, and Rebecca Remington. Um, they're going to each read for about 15 minutes, and then we're 15 minutes, that was not 50. And then we're going to have um, a Q&A session. Um, so um, get ready to ask them questions. Um, I'm going to just do a really brief introduction for each poet. Stephen Lieva was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, and raised in Houston, Texas. His poems have appeared in The Fiddleback, The Late Ekphrastic, Cobalt Review, and Little Patuxent Review. He is a Cave Canem Fellow, the winner of the 2012 Cobalt Review Poetry Prize, editor of the Little Patuxent Review, which is about to judge a poetry contest for us, and author of the chapbook Low Parish. Stephen holds an MFA from the University of Baltimore, where he teaches an undergraduate writing program. Stephen's theme is often history, not an abstract history, but a saga involving specific people and vivid urban settings. His language weds sound to sense in unforgettable musical ways, as in the beautiful description of a woman who continues sweeping even where there are no apples. The poems are tragic and sorrowful, but affirming and hopeful also. They are clear-eyed, wide-viewed. I bite down and name it all good, says the speaker of In Creole. Please help me to welcome Stephen Lieva. It is a great honor to be here um, once again in the Poe Room. Uh, this is my favorite place in the uh, Central Library. Um, and it's a, an interesting room because no matter where you look, you are faced by Poe, but Poe never seems to be looking at you. Um, so that, that puts you in a funny position, but maybe there's something of poetry in that, in that, um, in that framing. Um, uh, I made it a goal for 2015 to read uh, all new work. Um, so I'm going to do that today. Um, and we're going to travel a bit um, between two port towns, between um, our own Baltimore and between uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, and uh, the, if anyone's a fan of Confederacy of Dunces, uh, the beginning of that book, a wonderful co a comedic novel, um, there's an epigraph that talks about how port towns have more in common with each other than they do with any other town inland. Um, and that's something that sort of fascinates me as I write about place and people and uh, biracial identity. Um, so this one's called Fat. That Tuesday, that much glitter filling the gutter, that parade on some Zulu, that carnival king, that beloved drunk with his drunk mother, that river teasing the city with its obesity, the whole damn gulf dyed purple 
as a bruise on the thigh, that backside round as hallelujah in the mouth, that handsome cab, that good whiskey poured in the ear, that dance reduced to the bend in a bow's wrist that says yes, that blessed black eye given to the bigot, that sea of plastic beads, that revelry after the club closes, that way the quarters club the air with music, that beat on a beat on a beat, that dozen playing by the corner men, that gumbo pot filled to the top, that po' boy longer than your arm, that Mima's house on a cinder block quatrain, that darkness fat as ham hock, that new world fleur-de-lis, Stamped on the back of fool's gold, that easy gone big, that saint with the other saints amassing at the only matins that matter, the trumpet player bending a minor scale till it's penitent, then making that sin or just after, that waning moon that mimics the city's sickle shape, that anemia mimicking too as much as a sycophant, that yet some speak, that accent that can't be taught, that head count of actors who got it wrong, that body called the gulf, seductive as the Aegean, that triptych in Zotico's baseline, long enough to write the epics that won't console, that lip smack left cold on a stranger's breast, that field of Elysium, but really just a street that runs through New Orleans, along bones layered with neighborhood fat and hungry bulldozers, that parade down to Lent, that asking of God, what's he giving up? That time he said, this city, and everyone laughed, lifting their feathered masks to kiss that night that ends in Wednesday's ash. <laughs> You're gracious. <laughs> and kind, I you know, appreciate it. Um, we're going to stay in New Orleans for a little bit, if that's okay with you guys. This is Cross over this Crescent City. Over a radio that sizzles a voice like a morning egg, the driver reminds each fare, last stop. The Loyola line ends and empties a stone's throw from the riverbank. Soon, every degree of drunk walks straight to the quarter, lining up for beignets. The cafe line is longer than the shoreline, overrun with Mississippi silt and trash. I take a turn as tourist in my birth city and return. I refuse the river, even my sweat, even the music of my muffled weeping. Horse hooves clawed and clip the panhandle jazz into broken solos. The morning doves mock Jackson Pollock. In the palm leaves, soft ballast. Casinos begin their post-dawn exhale of smokers. Mufaletta on the mind has a cook toe-tapping down Dumaine Street. The driver draws his pole and hook, shucking up the new railroad signs with two quick thrusts. I return the Loyola line its wet light from neon and blown glass. I have refused nothing. Seatbacks slide to show their backs to the dead end of the rail. This is how verse reverses. In separate light, the sun and moon have made the slowest sign of the cross over this crescent city. 
The streetcar rolls back myrrh-hued eyes of men and women who, misrenem- who misremember the names of hotels. Accents thicken, cooked like yolk in a frying pan. I call to the men and women saying, cousins, cousins. Following the law of diminishing returns, they say nothing. I dream pickpockets refuse, lent, expired lotto tickets, twine from a stack of hundreds, a newspaper clipping. Someone's fugue has gone the way of confetti swept by wind, leaving the soft toll of the streetcar's bell at every intersection. Um, Some of my new manuscript tries to tackle um, the tensions and concerns that arise when uh, someone has a multi-ethnic identity. Um, And I realized that while I was never taught anything about that growing up, um, it might be something that I want to share with my own children. So I wrote a poem for my daughter that's called On Living Mixed. On Living Mixed for Tsunade, who's in the back there talking to you too. (laughs) Don't ask me to remember. For us, history's gone Not black enough at night, too black in the morning. Daughter doesn't mean bruised, fruit left to rot. I don't know what to say about complexion that isn't a lie, a fetish for other fetishes. So, be Creole in all sense. Skin is memorial. A few phrases will do. Say my double consciousness doesn't split. Say my family tree is a forest where we know the white oak and I won't tell you, the Dutch elm and I won't tell you, the avocado tree and I won't tell you the difference. May it be enough. I've made the world uglier by inscribing it. Here, someone will curse you with proper or still a nigger or not. There's a couple of poems in this manuscript that deal with uh, family. Um, and this one is a ode to my brother that also has Andre the Giant in it and Hulk Hogan and Thundercats and Frosted Flakes. So there's something for everybody in this one, I think. It's called Laurels. A prelude to practicing our suplexes and top rope dives, the giant and Hogan duking it out on the tube, I rested in a headlock as my brother forgot his grip and slouched on the couch. Here, the blonde Hulk stood framed between our old set's wood grain, staring up Andre's long black unitard. Some night A slam. Course, rumor was the giant was all ruse. Threw the fight and let Hogan lift him. I nearly exploded, my brother shouting hot damn over and over. His hand on my head like laurels. And our difference in age disappeared and stayed gone for years. A comfort since I stumbled behind him on the basketball court, so long staging myself in his costumes, a letterman, a high top fade, a neck strung with drama club medals, duet acting, but enough. What I want to say is I've mixed up so much, but that slam remains, body and all, ruse or real, 
and everything else is lists of groceries, drool on church pews, piles of debt letters, minutia of rain on roof, the winter's erasure without irony, and births and deaths, and so much blues without music. Two. So, Saturday mornings, our hand on the vertical hold dial, twisting the flickering image between the wood grain, we ate frosted flakes and sang the Thundercats theme song, shouting, Ho! with wonder in each other's faces. My godlike older brother and I arguing over who'd be Panthro, over whose black eye was coming first. Sight beyond sight is what we learned as our dad demanded a divorce and shouted, Hogo burn at our mother. I understood I couldn't hate him more than my brother. Oh, my beautiful brother, how sore your left cheek being slapped by our white stepmother. The years after how you learned to turn the other to the world, your hands on the vertical hold of love gone wrong. I want a theme song for your pain. Bruh, I want the thunder and rain and you to be a panther again. Lovely, dark, dangerous, and wild as heat lightning. Seems to be a lot of TV in this manuscript as well. Um, Anybody in here a fan of Star Trek? So when I say TNG, you know that means... The next generation, right? So this poem has a couple of um, uh, acronyms in it. Uh, One of them is TNG, Next Generation. The other is um, RSC, which is the Royal Shakespeare Company. And if you can't already tell, it's an ode to Patrick Stewart. Um, But, you know, Patrick Stewart was someone who my mother had a pretty significant crush on, Um, even, even, you know, as he was on Star Trek. Uh, So this is Ode to Patrick Stewart, Snatched by Mama. Playing captain on TNG, you brought sexy back to balding. Or so my mother said, half smacking her lips on Jean-Luc, easy on brown eyes that never loved white men before. All those roles in RSC prepped to sit on the set. Roddenberryan throne leathered in late 80s tan. Nobility, Caught in a photo, negative stage production, Othello, gray temples fully shaved, blackface rubbed out the imaginary cast list, dark love calling back those days when you lived in my living room, TV, making mulattoes in my mother's mind. Her Desdemona fantasy, and true, she doesn't even know that name, but could pull it off, pull down the world stage, or at least undress taboos, having bowed before in one Minnesota courthouse near Mankato State, newly pregnant, newly married. With you, she could do this as quickly as she's taken over this ode. Sir Patrick Stewart, the one of my memory, way back when two TVs could stack on each other, alternative shelves, you were loved, not wisely, but too well, by a woman bold as an old black ram assuming moorship of Venice. So just a couple more. Um, Here's one for good old Baltimore. Um, It's called 
Mob Town in Midsummer. The firework barges pull anchor under a veil of ash and wind. Ardor fattens this night with black. People swagger and lack set aglow, howling down the inner harbor's shoreline. A ratted gown of fog reveals even the moonlight stutters at their passing. Their slight slaughter of laughter while foghorns blare all Baltimore into revelry. But who cares? Ignoring an Indian summer, July began as usual with a few murders and flan. Orders rising to fill the cafe terraces where wonder nearly extinguishes the sun journalist shop talk about future gubernatorial stock characters. No one speaks this tonight, and minds turn listless with crab hammers. In the swift crack, vials slid in handshakes. Summer's slack vowels hum along everyone's accent, remembering the seasons half spent. And here, someone is marking a vacant with urine. And there, someone is declaring the last Bohemia. And everywhere, Bethlehem steel is abandoned. And former workers mill in the assembly line of TV dinners. Darkness bleeds from alleys on the backs of rats. And folly of light skims the sweat on a policeman's gun, the safety unset. Baywater thronging below condos, intones a coda for a black crowd's slow exodus. Evening and morning, the fourth day, midsummer, thumbing through the soft linens of wind to lie over a city that shouts back at its own obituaries, too soon, too soon. We have time for two more? I think so. All right. So um, this is mother's imaginarium for her son. You in clean linen, dazzling the last Palm Sunday before Armageddon. You in anything but a gritted work boot. You in a uniform that has no need to print your name. You in lab coat, you on the arm of a yellow bone, you redressing the pulpit, you lighter than your mother, your sons passing every exam without trying and hanging their medals on your reflection from the fridge, you turning the dial of freshness to 11, you breaking record books like Moses over a golden calf, you a Baptist without beheading the family's love of dance. You clothed in every spectrum of light skinned. You besting David at slingshots and lyre strumming. You thumping Goliath with a fistful of money. You in heaven. You pulling heaven down like old curtains. You tugging the miracle hymn. You out the briar patch. You growling with brer bear. You rabbit foot of the family. You dumb luck of a generation. You wearing the wind. You body fit in firelight with nobody's cross burning. 
So I'll, I'll end with um, one that is uh, kind of straddles between uh, New Orleans and Houston and, and Baltimore and synthesizes all that. And really, it's about my dad. So um, August Wilson is one of my favorite playwrights. And one of the things that he says in, um, in the piano lesson is that uh, land is the only thing that God ain't making no more of. Um, and so place dominates my um, imagination. Um, but even when I try to write about place, my dad seems to follow me into the poem. <laughs> um, so this is Headley without the rooster. You guys know who Buddy Bolden is, right? Famous New Orleans jazz player. Um, he comes up in the poem too. Here go the money. I heard Buddy Bolden say, but forget it. Today it's just dad wadding up a few 20s to throw at my chest. What you came for, take it away. A clump of double saw bucks dropped where he taught two sons to shoot hoops. Welcome the sun as kinfolk, dribble drive, crossover, drop step, layup. On a driveway nearly gone to weeds. In heat that make an Oreo blister. Backing me down near the backboard, he'd say, not a black man, an American. And scoop his baby hook, an easy two. His strip of concrete, his court, and nothing made him miss my mother more than asking for money. It came to trash talk after every basket. Never beat him head to head the way he beat me with bills. Ever heard a young rooster in the middle of the night crow and wait? Ever seen a man slaughter the king of the barnyard? I waited all weekend to ask or crow or beg some cash for school clothes. What I got was a sternum double tap, the blunt end of a macheted sunset, an easy two. Funky butt, funky butt, take it. Should have said more. Backed him down before squatting at the crumbled curb. My hand hooked like a beak, scooping $40 off the ground away. Even confused, even in darkness, I hear the rooster crow a command to the sun saying, rise and believe it. I hear Buddy Bolden in a dream, his voice like fogged dawn Say, here go the money, and there is my father offering his hookshot to the sky. Thank you. Wow, thank you, Stephen. That was really great. Okay, um, so our next poet is John A. Nieves. I hope I'm saying that right. Okay. Um, John has poems published in journals such as Southern Review, Poetry Northwest, and the Minnesota Review. He won the 2011 Indiana Review Poetry Contest, and his first book, Curio, um, published last year, won the Elixir Press Annual Poetry Award Judges Prize. He is an assistant professor of English at Salisbury University. He received his MA from University of South Florida and his PhD from the University of Missouri. 
Curio, which is the name of John's book, shares a root with the word curiosity, and his poems are passionate about knowledge. They are eager to test the weak links in our thoughts, the lies and illusions that threaten to make us, in his words, toy people to ride this toy steed. What replaces the old lies is the truth of the poems themselves, which feel both like brilliant magic tricks and like chemistry experiments, surprising us, rearranging reality. Please help me to welcome John A. Nieves. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for the beautiful introduction. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. So I'm going to read a few um, poems, actually one from each section of Curio here, and then I'm going to read some new stuff. Um, so I'm going to start with a poem um, from the first section, which is specimens, and this is called uh, Colophon Elegy and Fragments. There are no more lip readers at the diner tables, no more eyes assigned the task of remembering. The phones ring and erase us. Cups have lost their strings. If there are any watches left to wind, I will find them. I will give what little life I can. Old habits ritualize on bar stools. Long names are shortened to fit into a sigh. Speak of these things. Speak to the washing machines, the old women chewing blackjack. Speak to the grass and the memory of grass. How do footprints unfurl across these alleys? I am counting the minutes until the month goes rabbits, until one becomes when we are. There's a dog snarling on a TV and a possum playing dead on the street. No one could put cards in the spokes this year. No one sent a postcard with a picture of a road. This morning, someone will press the underside of a wrist to the forehead of a child and say, fever or no fever, augury. The bones can only reveal what is asked of them. Shells of payphones line the night, a graveyard for destination, angry fingers of certainty raised against the horizon. I will hum along to this seeping across the guardrails, the pigeon feathers, the roadside monuments. I still believe that cobwebs take the best inventory of what goes untouched. I see them moving the corners closer. So this next poem is from the second section where lab work, the poem that you were nice enough to put up on the website, um, comes from, which is uh, talismans. And it's a section that's pulling together all like the little strange folk tales and things that made up very much my youth. I was very into like, Daniel Cohen's Encyclopedia of the Strange and all those little tales. And this, this plays with uh, the legend of Caspar Hauser, who is a historical person, but the story around him is mystery. So, um, so there's a a person who showed up in Germany in a town saying that he was raised essentially in a box or a small room without human contact until a few months before he was to be released when someone taught him how to read and speak from behind so he couldn't actually see them. And he only had a note that said, uh, my name is Casper, um, my father was a cavalryman. Uh, and then he moved from patron to patron until people decided he was lying, kicked him out, then he'd be beat up and get a new patron and so on the cycle. So, okay, here we go. This is called mirror writing. They say he was trying to fake being stabbed in the heart, but the blade was sharper than he expected, slipped in a bit too far. This was not a merciful miscalculation. The knife did not go so deep as to hide the mistake from its maker. Instead, a small cut, a slow leak, three days mumbling in a sweat. 
There were no deathbed admissions, no revelations that he had in fact come from somewhere, from someone, for something. He had a history of lying, and the note was in his hand, yet he was insistent. He was stabbed by the man who had taught him to write, who had brought him to the city with only a letter in hand. In those last few hours, he babbled about an attack, about how he was raised in a room like a box. They knew the story. The note was in his hand. He had a history of denying a history. Regardless, someone taught him how to write, wrote, my father was a cavalryman, wrote, my name is Casper. Regardless, history snapped him up and turned him into statuary, much like Nuremberg, much like history. And if the note was in his hand, he did not drop the victim's guise. That was the gift he left. The best tricks are the ones we can't wholly explain. The best cons are the ones we rename mysteries. Regardless, the note was history. This is uh, from the third section, Grave Goods, um, and this is a poem called Sawtooth. I am a bad exile. Many are better at articulating home, calling its ghost back, populating it with stoppers by and storylines. Shadow Benny, Rakao. That is the best I can find. More specifically, a mash of that, an onion, garlic, pepper, cilantro. The pale green goop would hit the hot pan, and that smell, that second, was flash magic, was better than a nightlight at chasing whatever was chasing me away. Then the black beans. Writing this now, my bones ache for it, from my mother's voice through the sizzle, Regaito. My child brain didn't translate that as little culantro, but re caer ito, to fall a little again. I thought it meant the feeling in my stomach over each coaster arch at Riverside. So that is what I felt and still feel. But inherent in the meal is its destruction, art made to be eaten, memories for consumption. Only a few days ago, watching a a micro-documentary on Uphelia, I saw the the Shetland streets fill with ornately dressed torchbearers, dancers, musicians, marching through town to a meticulously built Viking ship. I thought they might board it for a ritual ride, tossing the torches into the lapping waves. Instead, they set it ablaze. Of course they did. Of course it never went to sea. Its ashes found the water like satisfied mouthfuls, and I wish I could say what's welling up in me now, such a personal yearning for a place I've never been. One more click before the big drop, the napkin in my lap. These words, of course, these words. And uh, this is one from the final section, which is correspondences, and it's called Chaff, and it's in three sections. Um, They're very, very short sections, though, so... (laughs) Okay, um, one. The air starved for humidity, power lines jejune across the night, my breath so weak against your name, trying to find a shudder of ions, suss a spark out of the susurrus, the transformer's homesick hum. Above me, your teeth are locked, I know, onto the inside of your cheek. I know the iron, I know your tongue, I know you will rub your eyes until spots fill the darkness, until something resembling a star falls to you. Rice on the floor, not for boiling, nor remnant scatter from an accidental tear. It was your prayer rug, penance, a long shock to the knees, and sometimes rock salt. You were too worried about consecration, the ritual ache, but scraping your loneliness against the mirror cleanses nothing, sanctifies nothing. 
You can't even mouth your name without aping kisses to the phantom hand of some savior, some spectral audience, proof that someone is listening. Here is your proof. Cheaper still, here is your prayer. But it it is not as loud as your breath, as your desire for purity, as the dripping faucet and its resident rust. Undone dishes. Flattened boxes declaring their contents to use napkins and old fruit. I forget you like corn syrup solids, an integral ingredient that means nothing in the abstract. I lose your face in pictures. In my dreams, you are only that high, slow creak the boards made and the soft sobbing that may have been an echo that may have been the truth. Um... I'm going to read a few poems now from the manuscript I just finished and has just gone to the wind, so I hope someone loves it and takes it. <laughs> it's called Nothing Like a Ghost. Um, and one of the main motions in the manuscript is a poem for each of the 13 moons of the Algonquin moon sequence. Um, so this one, I thought, I'm in the Poe room. I have no ravens in any poems I checked. But the March, the March moon in the sequence is Crow Moon, and that's kind of close, so I went with that. So here, here is Crow Moon. For the crows to come home, there must be something to eat, something newly born or newly dead. Either way, the fence lines caw deep into the evening. The black swells with beaks that rise and sink themselves into garbage bins, the parking lots, the sides of the road. If in the winter we are alone with death, we are now together with it. Its wings are on the power lines, reflected in our windows. When the heat kicks on and drowns the night sounds, the full moon finds their eyes and says, if not for those walls. When I was a kid, and I'm sure when many of you were, you'd play that game where the floor was lava, right? You, don't, you can't step on the floor, like that's, that's how you lose. And I found, that, I found that often I'd end up playing that game and we'd team up and try not to fall in, which seems kind of counterpunctual, right? How do you win if nobody falls in? But I found that experience seemed important to me enough to try to explore it again. So here's a poem that does that. It's called, I Declare This Room a Volcano. Some games we played weren't about competition. The goal was for everyone to win, like when we'd throw pillows around the room and name the floor lava. No one tried to push anyone else in. The idea was adventure. We would risk imaginary immolation to reach the hallway, the outskirts of the world. I miss those games. I miss the magic of anyone having the right to declare anything dangerous at any time. I have longed for it. How many times I've wished to shout, Don't go home with him. He's lava. Don't get on that motorcycle. It's quicksand. Or, Don't move there. It's full of sharks. And for a second... Have the other reached to me to steady their balance before bounding the opposite direction of hospitals and cemeteries and any variety of prison. Instead, we have reached an age of evidence. Convincing must be done, even as the soles of our feet catch fire, even as we squint to ignore the flames. Almost spring. You're nothing like a ghost, nothing wispy. You don't even resemble air or mist. Instead, the weight is all I have, laced with cold, garnished with a name you'll never tell anyone. Still, they lay you in my arms like you could cry yourself back, like you even knew how. For a second, I think of opening your eyes, but falter, afraid to know whose they were. I want to hum Brahms' lullaby, but you are not listening. 
I count backwards from February and try to erase this. I get to June. You're still quiet, still heavy, still. This is uh, Yarolo Moonlit. So this is what it has come to, Moon. You eyeing me from across the lawn, making crushed cans look romantic, throwing the soil under the bushes into strict darkness. Some nights long ago, when shaking would take me, you would pretend to be the sun, open up the sky and say, there is nothing lurking, there is nothing but dust in the hall and snow out the window. All that, and now this. The people who walk by throw trash in our yard for no reason other than the fence is low, and you, moon, throw a halo around it, give the ants a satin glow. And I stand bitten, wondering if this is the same spell you always cast, if the danger was always right at my feet waiting for you to make it beautiful. And these are a couple from my brand new third project, so I'm still elbow deep in it. So (laughs) they might not even end up being the versions that they stay, but I thought... They'd come out here and see how they felt in public, and if they felt a little naked, at least I'd know. So, um, this is the god of vestiges, Cauda Draconis. Of leftover things, of the place the bus used to stop on the corner, here, before the express route, and how, dry or no, we would step out into a puddle, the exhaust fog doing karaoke around our ankles of the sensation of taking a bath before my legs grew too long, before I grew some silly dignity that wouldn't let my skin feel bubbles, of Trinidadian roti on my tongue, the warm potatoes smash, spices decorating my lips, you using a knife because you'd need to be a snake to open your mouth that wide, of my jump shot and my herky-jerky crossover, of those early days of independence before the civilizing force of hampers when clothes lived in trash bags, when antenna TV still could be had with the right hanger, of case studies, of late-night paper sessions, of cheap diner coffee and long-term retail, of 4 a.m. eyes wide before sleep, of sleep, of the weight of your head left on my neck, how if I turn just so, I hear your breathing, of your breathing, of these pockmarks on the ground, of the quirant and the quisited, of augury, impatient divinations, the tale of the dragon. And I leave you with this. <laughs> this is Reverb Populus. There will come a time on the oldies stations when everyone singing or playing is dead, the soundtrack to a sort of extinction. Everyone who heard those dead perform will also be dead. We are running out of witnesses. We are a generation in which listening to the dead has lost its magic, been accepted mundane. We think, ghosts come through the radio. What else ever could? In a time before airwaves, before letters, hearing the dead was hard work. The fires spit the dead as a chorus of unbridled gleaming, of short sparks and slow burns. Is there a difference between light and distance? This is wick weather. We know the power is going to fail. We have stockpiled lighters and tapers and cheap antique candlesticks. We have stockpiled light. We have quieted here among the big words and darkness, among pauses disguised as lifetimes. Old songs. We are chorus hungry. Sing along. Anthemic, the dead meet the night and they can't tell each other apart and we can't tell the dead to be quiet. We don't need stones or ritual smoke. 
There are more voices than people and not enough people to miss the bodies or remember the bodies, the bodies, the world. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. That was really lovely. Okay, and last but not least, um, Rebecca Remington. Um, Rebecca's poetry has appeared in Agni Online, Blackbird, Haydn's Fairy Review, the Missouri Review, Ninth Letter, Rattles, Smartish Pace, and elsewhere. Her chapbook, Asphalt, was selected by Marie Howe for the Clorinda Harris Poetry Award. She is the recipient of a Rubis Artist Project Grant as well as three Maryland State Arts Council Individual Artist Awards in Poetry. She currently teaches creative writing at Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Rebecca's poetry is full of conversational language converted to gorgeous music, and it's also full of suburban details, baby cries, Legos, dishwashers, made radiant. Sadness presses on these poems, but they push back with wisdom, grace, and humor. In the Happiness Severity Index, for instance, the speaker counters a description of her darker qualities by showing ways in which she is serenely flexible. I like the rain when the boat drifts, I wave when the dog runs off, I follow. We follow the poet in the same way, and the journey is a deep pleasure. Please help me to welcome Rebecca Remington. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, um, an honor, a pleasure to read with um, John and Stephen. Is that better? Okay. All right. I'm going to read um, some poems from my book, Asphalt, and some new poems as well. This first poem is called 61 Keys. Um, my older son, who is here, is uh, a violinist, and it's, it's great to see your children uh, take on musical instruments. But before he played the violin, he played a keyboard, uh, mainly because we couldn't fit a piano in our house. So it had 61 keys as opposed to 88. 61 keys. A keyboard, like the one we owned, is no piano. It had a trumpet mode, a harp mode, a mode that sounded like a coughing dog. <laughs> Often out of boredom or helplessness, I don't know which, my son would switch timbers mid-song. It had a mode like a bicycle, like bicycle wheels after rain. The overpass construction went on and on, ripping out wildflowers planted on the exit ramp turning the air bright with dust. Once, where the flowers had been, we watched a spot-a-pot installation. A few days later, a black crane rose like a brancusi bird I'd seen in Jansen's History of Art. No roads closed, traffic too vital to stop. Each Friday afternoon, we would cross the bridge on foot, my son and I, for his piano lesson. In winter, we were hard to see. As far as I know, no one ever jumped from the bridge, 
such a death could easily involve a stranger. Should I say that was the year I stopped bleeding or the year I heard a cloud around which the air formed itself into cicada, sea scales, and jackhammer crescendo? O loveliness of hands of experience, O pearl-like loveliness of a single hour, the year of the bridge renovation, the year of Mozart made easy for piano. Uh, And my younger son um, is totally fascinated with optical illusions. Um, So we were all very excited last week about the the blue and black dress that went viral. (laughs) So this is called Soul. In the book of optical illusions, first you see the ancient one butting heads with the rabbit. Then you see the young woman carrying the duck. The skintillating black dots in white circles seen from the corner of your eye are not there. Move the book six feet away, the angry face is full of joy. Close your eyes. God is the circling buzzards, the mangled furry thing in the clearing too beaten to stand, something you've chanced upon on the sunny path down the mountain. This is called In Praise of the Last Hour of the Afternoon. That's the hour before the bus comes home. (laughs) The afternoon's yours, Silence, rain, milk left out in a glass, and the unswept towel and derailed toy trains. The afternoon's an island, miles of coastline, a long walk in the mind. Soldier apparitions, pocketing limestone, part fish, part dream shard, spine bone to finger and translate in the dissolving day. If the catapa moves in the wind, is that enough? If one walks the perimeter once more. In the material world, muffled cues are everywhere. The unplayed ode to joy open on the music stand. Remotes and geodes on the coffee table. The breeze on the glass, erotic almost. Your mother's life a hair's breadth different from your own the little plastic throwaways from China, for instance. She never had this problem. You think sun blooms on the Yellow River Basin. You think, but you don't know. You're in another country. You're like any mother. You'd trade pearls for quiet before the children rush in with their end-of-the-day edginess, their hunger, their reports of small injustices. You go for a bottle of red truck, pellucid and plum-colored. Make note to note your beloved's eyes, graphite flexed with onyx and snapdragon, the underside of a waterfall. You live in a time of war. The president has kept the coffins hidden. In the corner of your vision, a city burns, and the little birds eat seed cake and are next to nothing, and the shadows have their say. 
and the oval track in your living room remains. This is called goat. The weather was saying, come out, and so they did. The man, the woman, the boy, adjusting to the waning heat after so much midday sun. After the inertia of indoors, the blare of screens, the sticky floor, the fragile arrangement of trains. The boy kept falling off his bicycle, getting back on, peddling the short length of the field. It was a return to kindness, despite the gnats everywhere, like colliding names coming out of the future. It was a reprieve after so much flickering noise. Beyond the baseball diamond, at the edge of the complex, a goat walked to a fence, waiting to be fed milk thistle or burdock or graham cracker from the hands of the child, who imagined he alone had been born for this moment, that without him, the goat might die of hunger or loneliness. The sky had taken on a shapeliness like a flood in an aftermath, an eerie pinkish erasure. Um, this is called... I call her Inez, and uh, it was inspired by, I think, a, a TED Talk by Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, you can look it up. Uh, but anyway, her point was that you should picture a muse outside of yourself as like an attendant spirit, and that way the responsibility of um, producing and being creative doesn't all fall on you or... Your lack of creativity then isn't your fault, right? I call her Inez. The speaker in the video, in black, said, picture an attendant spirit when you draw or write. That way it's not all on you. You feel enough failure as it is by your streaky window that could house a houseplant but doesn't. Get a pencil, glass of Chardonnay, I see her now, 15 minutes after the hour. She carries a mason jar full of shadows, shakes them out across the floor. They blow into corners like thing one and thing two. It's true I love shadows. She knows this. One has ghost blue eyes like my mother's mother. One smells like formaldehyde. Shadow fingers pull a shadow IV. My attendant has slept alone in a tent just below the timber line, but cannot name one mountain flower. She won't talk about the summit, what the clouds said, but tells how a man stumbled on his way down, muttering how his, how his son disappeared into a radioactive sky, the discolored photo on the post office wall. She knows how to spell grotesque and grandiose, but not grateful. She has never been to Reykjavik, but brings twice-baked potatoes from South Baltimore, a remedy parcel from a strip mall drugstore. Take eat. The hereafter is quiet as an auditorium. The sun drove her to delirium once in a fishing boat. It was like being inside a man. History of in-house detention, 
History of Truancy, Cheater at Scrabble, Muse of Half Lies, No Body, No Heavy Periods. Once she convinced 11 others to put a man in jail. He calls me sometimes after she's gone, describes a Texan sunset through wire, the recantation of seven witnesses, a drunken defender. This is called Halo Dialogues Ending in Phenambulism, uh, which is tightrope walking. Transfiguration is too much for people like us. We could never make sense of such things, she said as we passed Bertamini's salon. Through the tattooed glass, we could see Iris twirl her curling brush through beetle brown strands. In the back, a row of widows browse the glossies. In the end, nothing is ever fine enough without some kind of supernatural noonday finish. In those days, my friends and I had many such conversations, quasi-religious, not without faith exactly, but with no pretense of authority or care to convince a queer kind of meandering between diapers and feedings about the good, the difficult, or the woman's body as a thing apart. Where we walked a canopy of black walnut made swaths of light on the road that wound past the old rich houses, front yards of brambles and stylized dandelions. The roll of stroller wheels lulled the babies. She said, I saw this woman in a candy shop. I could not stop staring. Have you never felt mythically beautiful? I remembered 13, no, 10, perhaps then, perhaps never, perhaps when I thought of nothing but fields and horses I would never own. Yet the cries of the babies contained, I thought, all the beauty in the world though they too would learn ungainliness. What is certain, she said, is soup kitchen work. We went on to argue the worthiness of tightrope walking. Height and peril is everything. Spurning the law, creating a murmur below the cypress. I don't care how many spires you bridge. The crowd can't stop looking up. Those who want it to happen, those who don't. a few more uh, this is a short poem called Fish Hunting <clears throat> we used to have fish now we have a gecko but this is back when we had fish and danios are just cheap cheap fish you can get in the, the pet smart or wherever fish hunting listen to the rain outside the house of tropicals we came to build a landscape so many ruins to choose from, so many castles. The three of us walked aisles of tanks, dollar danios straight from heaven. The children asked, the child asked if the highwayman would appear in the nights. He was, I think, speaking of pain. There was enough painted gravel to make a coastline, stones that shone like sun-lost swimmers. 
The clerk swore she loved every fish, though only some were emissaries. This is called um, November Diary. This was two Novembers ago. The storm veered north and missed me. On TV, an insurance man goes among twisted joists, discerning wind damage from flood damage. I read an article on overmothering, how it leads to long gray days. Better to permit cartoon violence. The election is over. The right people have won. To avoid mass misery, Pascal says, one must learn to sit alone in a room. A poem comes to me, but the words aren't in the right order. No children are mentioned. On my three-lap jog around the block, I find a nest blown from a tree. Inside, a tiny bird skeleton, barely discernible, same color as the grass. And my last poem is called um, Little Seismic. And I wrote this after uh, that earthquake that hit us a couple summers ago. Um, it wasn't a very big earthquake, but a lot of people felt it in this area. And we happened to be at the beach when it happened. Little Seismic. I was there. The fan trembled, the plant trembled, the rented room became one faint undulation. Great Aunt Mary said, I think we should go. Outside, the sun rained, the sand was as usual, bright umbrellas, women in tankinis, their happy and unhappy bodies, walking along, and the ocean liners far off, unshaken. Later, we bought a six-pack and a bag of groceries. Did you feel it? A stranger asked. The National Cathedral, a place I have visited only twice, lost three pinnacles off its central tower. What else? Nothing else or this. The bees come, the apples. In September, my son writes an essay called Brave Boy, and the teacher calls his handwriting sloppy. The vagabond stands on the green island, and the light changes. Why do the bees sound so happy this year? Why are the houses all awake, shining lights, even in daylight? The anti-confessional prodigal daughter goes about her business, filing papers, buying groceries. When I stand in the white glow of the refrigeration zone in Paradise Liquors, it's the names I love. Flying Dog, Resurrection, Woody Creek. It's not all about high alcohol content. Shock Top, Raging Bitch. Blue motion, 
something for the afternoon when the children mine for virtual diamonds. How do I get a pickaxe? Press B. The bees come, the apples. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rebecca. That was beautiful. Um, so we're going to do just a little, a short Q&A session. Um, and um, this water is I just want to mention that we're, pod, we're recording this for a podcast for our website. So um, um, if you... Uh, <laughs> such a, a wonderful group of they're, they're all so different but it's just been really wonderful but um anyway, I was just going to say that when we ask, when people ask questions um, in order that the question can be recorded maybe maybe one of you could kind of repeat or paraphrase the question um, before you answer um, yeah so it's recorded oh, you can call David? Sorry, not David I'm sorry yes Good presentation from all three of you. I noticed that each of you teach uh, English or writing at the, at the various universities. And I wanted to know that in your classes, when you deal, I think, with poetry reading or writing, do you notice uh, a new pattern? Is it just something with the, where, where are the young people learning? You know, what kind of subjects are they interested in? Are they interested in? But we used to read in poetry, like the Port City, or are we learning about. Um, uh, the sky and all that. What is the writing style? How does it compare to what it is now? So the question was about like what are students writing about now in the classroom? Um, I, my students are pretty diverse in what they write about. I think if I had to deal with what topic is hot, if that was one of the questions, I think identity mm -hmm. is really important. And I think different ways identity is constructed both by them and for them, and what the tension is between the two is something they're exploring in really a lot of different ways. The style is not predictable, and I always find that to be my main responsibility is to figure out what they're trying to do and help them do that, not to try to impose anything on them. So often they surprise me with things that I never would have even expected, and then I, I just kind of want to dance. But you know, it's the good stuff. Um, I think a lot of the time, when they they come with serious questions and they find ways that make sense to them to investigate those, so maybe they're not the port city or the sunset over the field, but they might be. They might mm -hmm. be. They mm -hmm. could also be the radio or the death of the radio or mm -hmm. little origami swans. So. I find that um, many of my students are interested in how poetry can respond to um, not only the personal but the political. Um, so how they how poetry can take action in the world and and cause or affect or be involved with change. Um, so you know social justice is is on their mind, but overwhelmingly they write about themselves, um, which is probably not not a surprise. But you know, I, it ends up being for me the that um, job of showing how the personal becomes political, and that can be the avenue to to a whole myriad of responses. So it's it's varied. You know, but certainly, you know, um, there's a, a theme of how can poetry respond to the world. Um, yeah, you know, Carolyn Forche's idea of bearing witness, you know, poetry of witness. 
And I would say I teach uh, introduction to creative writing, so um, my my students are fairly new to the field. And the truth is a lot of them have not been exposed to contemporary poetry at all, as I was hardly exposed to it um, when I entered college. So that makes me feel like I have a very exciting role and I can pick poems to show them, you know, that I think are just wonderful masterpieces and see them respond. And uh, uh, it's it's quite a pleasure. Um, and then to see them try to, to make something um, based on what I've shown them is, is wonderful. Yes. Um, you spoke of um, poems addressing social justice, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering how you uh, see the relationship with the songs of the 60s as compared to um, something that may be written that's more um, contemporary. You're talking about contemporary poetry? Well, I'm talking about the, the poems of the 60s, maybe, that, and also the songs of the 60s that are actually poems. Well, I mean, um, uh, past is prologue, right? So um, some of that is in our cultural uh, consciousness already. So when we, um, when students are responding to or when writers are responding to things that mirror the repetitions of history, um, those things are all in play. Um, but, uh, you know, I would say I am from, I'm of the mind that there's a, there's a pretty fair distinction between song and poetry, um, a, a valuable distinction um, that uh, would say that, you know, probably what I see more often is writers engaging with um, writers like Amiri Baraka um, engaging with the black, the black arts movement or, or June Jordan um, and uh, though, you know, writers who were you know, very concerned with um, uh, the way that poetry can protest and what that might mean. Um, and so all of that is kind of in the cultural milieu, right? The songs are a part of the context that the writers bring to, but I, I find it, it, it's uh, uh, more responding to other pieces of literature rather than song. I think, too, um, a lot of it is tied up. I I got to give a talk, which was amazing, um, about the poetic reactions to the music of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, At Salisbury, we had some of the marchers actually there, which was just remarkable. Um, And we we looked at some of um, Jay Gadam York's work, where he's directly speaking to it, and some of um, Major Jackson's work, too, that's um, intersecting. And while the poetry is doing, I I think, very much a different job, than the songs are, um, the I feel like the responsibility of history is not it's not a moving it's not a moving target. Like we're never talking about anything but history. Like any moment that I'm making a comment is already past, right? I can never say anything in, in the present that I can comment on. So that 
trying to separate it from the way we understand ourselves is, is more illusion than anything. And I think a lot of writers now, especially, are, are making time more concentric. Like, the terrain is hallucinatory. Like, the past is always here also, mm-hmm. because that's always who we are. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think there often it's, the power comes from, or the way power gets taken back is by figuring out new ways to mediate that past and to to understand it in a way that could actually free someone from a, a, a story that was not free. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Yes. When you refer to contemporary poetry, I'm going to follow up a little bit of what he had to say. Would you, all three of you, not just you, make that distinction? How do you define contemporary poetry versus poetry that may be more traditional or older or harking back to a different time or a different dynamic? We spoke about history past is prologue, but there are some dynamics of history that don't repeat themselves very far. Right. The, the question was, uh, how do we define contemporary poetry as opposed to other periods? And, and um, really, for me, anything post-World War II, I consider contemporary. I'm only hesitating because I hadn't considered the question before. Um, it, normally, I would say you know, I would agree with uh, Rebecca um, with that framing, um, that contemporary um, post-World War II. You know, everybody after the modernists, you know, we might put in that frame. But then that that's a huge, you know, that's a huge span, right? It, it, it makes it seem like what you're saying that the you know time gets funny because now everything is contemporary forever and ever and ever, right? Um, <laughs> Uh, you know what do we have any periods right but um you, you know if often when i talk to my students about contemporary poetry i'm often uh, thinking of people in the canon who were not considered the canon before um who have now been you know able to be brought into the canon you know so um you know somebody that i often share is terence hayes um uh, as as a contemporary writer who um, is engaging with those that breadth of history, but is you know still writing today. Um, yeah, so I, I look, I, I try to look for people who you could actually go and see, like you would go see a concert. You know, so maybe that's a secondary definition of contemporary. In my uh, in my own mind, like in my education, I was taught very much so like 1945 line, like the once 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 we didn't need a higher power to destroy everything then that's where the line breaks because the way we start thinking about the world is really different. Um, and that, that, was the, that was the line. Um, in my own experience, and, and I'm happy with that line, but I don't, I don't teach that line. Like that, to me, that's a postmodern line, and I really appreciate that line, and I, I love it. For me, I, I think I start the contemporary moment at the end of the Soviet Union, in my mind. Like that, that, because the Cold War mindset is a really different mindset, and the poems start to behave differently. And they start to reject certain kinds of categories that were really prevalent in some of the early periods. And I think novels do that, too. And we start getting this very documentary feeling where people want to stick things into poems, like receipts and historical documents and photographs, and they just need them in the middle, that there's a a different way of seeing the world. Um, I don't know what's contemporary, like the short answer of that is. For all, for, I mean, I think we could debate it 
for a long ways, but I do think your point about things evolving and not repeating is, is fair. Um, they do evolve, and so even if they repeat, they repeat themselves differently, and I think that difference is important, and it tells us about our moment and where we are, um, even though I think it's always, we're always looking back when we decide what moment we were in. <laughs> You could talk about some poets that have that you you figure in conversation with important influences and voices in here, or not poets, but just writers. Uh, certainly, for me, um, the I guess the list is broad as it should be, <laughs> but um, Cesare, there's an Italian uh, poet, Cesare Pavese, um, who really messed up my writing um, because he uh, is probably better known in Italy for his short stories, for his fiction, and he would talk about his poems being poem stories. Um, and yet, when you read them, you, the music is so undeniable um, that the narrative sort of takes a, a back seat, even though it's there. Um, so certainly him. Um, I mean, absolutely, I mentioned him already, Terence Hayes. Um, uh, uh, you know, there, there are a number... Of others, you know, they're the the old standards of Whitman. Um, uh, you know, I remember being a, a under an undergrad and kind of running to various friends and saying, "Look at this! Did you know that poetry could do this?" And they're like, "Yes, Stephen, we've known for a very long time about Whitman." <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, the, the, there there are those um, um, uh, there are poets like that. Um, more contemporary people that I feel that I am in dialogue with um, might be, um, well, people that, that I had the, the pleasure to study with, such as Valgina Mort and Aishan Hutchinson. Um, uh, you know, but I read, I read pretty broadly. You know, Steinbeck, too, you know, his, his sense of place. Um, yeah. Um. Of course, when you hear that question, the first thing you think is, oh, I'm going to leave so many people out mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. I get in bed tonight. I'm going to be thinking, why didn't I name that poet or this poet? Um, so, of course, Elizabeth Bishop has been a big influence on me. Um, lately, I've been reading a lot of Louise Gluck. She has a wonderful new book out, um, though my writing is very different than hers. Uh, Laura Kaziski has been a big influence influence recently um, Dean Young uh, uh, Thomas Transnomer I think mm -hmm. is how you say his name a wonderful Trans yeah. is that how you say Trans it? Transtromer I think Transtromer right. um, Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman of course so uh, I start way back like Exeter book um, Old English um, undescribed poems, um, quite a few of them, shockingly, and this doesn't happen for a long time after, um, are women speakers, and they, they have very different things to say than we would expect from them. <laughs> um, so I, I found that that was a heavy influence for me. Um, as far as like the, the big dogs, um, Yusuf Komenyaka, Larry Levis, um, Richard Dean Kelly, certainly um, big names for me, but contemporary, the list, I keep getting shocked by new books that I just find completely breathtaking. Um, 
Cynthia Marie Hoffman's new book on paper doll fetus is beautiful. Um, Alexandra T has a new book coming out called Wise and Foolish Builders. That's a remarkable book. Um, I've been teaching uh, Kevin Prufer and yeah. uh, Churches is a beautiful book. Um, and Jake Adam York, Murder Ballads and Abide. Those are, those are staples. Um, but I feel like every every month I'm reading a new book that puts me on the floor, so it's a good time to care about poetry. Mm-hmm. That's that's my my message. So. so the Italian poet you met, I mean you mentioned, um, I'm sure the Italian original is very beautiful. Are you talking about a translation now? Oh, I would love to tell you that I read it in Italian, but yes, <laughs> I read it in, tr- in translation. A, a very great uh, tra- translation by Jeffrey Brock um, of uh, it's called Disaffectations. Um, of it's a it's kind of like a collected of Cesare Pavese's work. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I, re- I read it in translation, um, but it, you know, as any good translation uh, strives to do, it, it makes it a good poem in English. Right. I love what Ilya Kaminsky says, um, uh, you, you, uh, American poet, um, Tupelo Press. He, sa- he says that we spend so much time talking about what's lost in translation and never about what's gained, and that you know, translation renews English. Right? We need that to happen. Um, and he goes as far as to say, um, which, which only a bilingual poet can, do, can say, is that there are some Russian poets who are better in English than they are in Russian. <laughs> so what, you know, what that says about translation, you know, I'll, I'll leave it to you. <laughs> This. Oh, my question was kind of a follow-up mm-hmm. to the, the very similar. <laughs> I find having started reading German poetry and the nuances in words are so subtle so that even so now that I lived in America for over 40 years, I never feel I truly get the whole range of what's in this word. I get it in or used to get it in German because now I forget German. But um, so the question is, do you think you can translate poetry truly without, in a way, recreating it? And isn't the translator recreating the poem on some level? Um, maybe I'll let some of my... I, I don't translate poetry. That's a really good question. Um, the question, I think, is is the poet sort of rewriting the poem? Is that your question? Yeah, in a way, adding what his interpretation... I, I think it depends... Yeah, the translator. I, I think it really, I think there's all different theories about translation and it depends on what kind of translator you are and what, um, how you want to be faithful to the original. Does anybody want to add to that? We, we have different. I, I, for example, yeah. say you can't translate Russian into English. You can translate Russian into German, but not into so, so Russian is interesting, right? Because once you put it into into English, a lot of the music, right, disappears. Like some of the formal things. Um, one of my teachers, Valjina Mort, who is a Belarusian poet, would talk about how in Russian there is no poetry without the sort of rhyme schemes and sort of musical elements that have, in some ways, um, people have thought of as passe in um, kind of 
contemporary uh, um, English poetry, although people certainly still do that. Um, but what she would go on to say is that um, as she, being a bilingual poet, realized that just as much as it, it's, it's the music in Russian, it's the silences and the pauses in English. You know, so that you can, you can translate, but the things that you're working with sometimes are different. Um, is it a new poem? Sure, um, I would say it is, but that doesn't mean that it's unfaithful. Um, I think, again, it, it, it's, 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 a, it's an act of transformation or transubstantiation. Let's put it that way <laughs> for any Catholics. <laughs> I, I'd like to um, hear you address uh, poetry um, as, a, as part of, of a vanguard um, for writers um, and in so much as there's been different struggles in the world and how poets address that as a vanguard. I think there are some major movements in, and that in DC, very close to here, there's Split This Rock, which is, does social justice work on so many levels um, in so many different cultures. And, but the tradition is rich and the tradition is very, very old. So I think poetry has been vanguard and I think there's a lot of revival, um, rediscovering some of the moments where poetry where poets banded together and were braver than they ever had the right to be. Um, I think of Arthur Norcha and Dennis Brutus in South Africa and the different kinds of exiles that they had to face. And I, I also think of some of, right now, the contemporary Cambodian poets that are writing in exile and really even can't go home now. <laughs> so there's, I think the poetry is always, I think it's always trying to do work that, changes the way we think of things. It's always fighting a status quo, and the status quo is really invested in itself, so it has to keep reinventing itself, because it's like a, it's like disease-resistant bacteria. <laughs> if, if people keep taking the, the same drug, then it figures out how not to. Um, so the poetry has to keep changing, and the, the same answer won't work five years from now that's working now. say one thing, well, two, two things about music, and, and I think Gil Scott Heron's a special case, so, mm -hmm. because he, he wasn't worried about some of the same problems that most musicians had, he didn't care if the cadence was exactly right, he didn't care if the rhyme met, so he really could put poetry to music if he wanted to, he could do that. Um, most of the time, it, the, the mores, like, or, or the norms of the genre don't allow it, now certainly things that aren't 
certain certain things are going to work your way out, and it's a, it's a sketchy line, and I'm not going to draw it hard. But I will say, a lot of the time, a good song that makes money, you know the words before you hear it, and in poetry, that's death. Like we don't, you don't need me to write something you could write yourself. Whereas if you're in the car, that's exactly what you want. You want that, right? But also, but but also, um, the to me, poetry like lives in the line, and sometimes the song gives up the line. You can't always hear the line break. And like the thing that poetry gets that prose doesn't get is that it gets to mean more than one way. Prose's unit of meaning is a sentence. The poetry has the tension between the sentence and the line, and they don't even have to mean close to the same thing, but they can insist on both being there. And the song, while it can have a pause, right, our brains connect that pause, whereas when we have the poem, we're forced to deal with it both ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tell my students that the sentence is a unit of meaning and the line is a unit of possibility. And so they function in very different ways. Um, uh, Rebecca, you want to add well, that at all? Well, I guess I'm thinking of um, the experience of reading a poem and seeing it on the page. Um, don't get me wrong. I, I love music, and it touches me in so many ways. Uh, seeing a poem on the page is a different experience to me. I feel like the image has to do a lot more work um, than a song. Um, it, it demands more of the image um, than a song does. There's a little book by um, a British poet called Glyn Maxwell that's really helpful about talking about this, dis- this distinction. And it's something where I build my framework from um, there. And what he says is that poems have two kinds of meaning. They have solar meaning and they have lunar meaning. And in his framework, solar meaning is everything that you can interpret, right? The craft of the poem, its tone, its, its mechanisms, right? But the lunar meaning is the magic, right? It's the thing that you, that's hard to describe. It's the stuff that would give you goose, goosebumps. And he says that meeting a poem is just like meeting a person, right? So if someone comes to you and offers to buy you a drink in a bar, what makes you say yes, Right? Probably if we asked everybody, somebody's going to say, well, something about the vibe you get off of them, right? And Glenn Maxwell's view, the vibe, that's lunar meaning. So what he says is that in song, right, lunar meaning is always carried by the melody, right? That's the thing that sticks in your brain. That's why you can remember a song five days later and you don't know why you're singing it, right? Um, But in poetry, there is no melody, right? There's music in the language, but... Lunar meaning has to be carried by white space and silence. Um, so that's where the distinction lies. And so Glenn Maxwell would say that uh, you take a, a, a song lyric, right? Even if it's Dylan or somebody, we might really like their lyrics. You put them on the page, and the lyrics die in the white space, right? Here's an exercise I do with my students. I tell them, give me a song that we would all know the lyrics to, Right? And invariably, somebody says something like, happy birthday. And I tell them, okay, somebody say the lyrics to happy birthday without singing it. Immediate hesitation. Which is odd, because three of the lyrics are the same, right? Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to something, happy birthday to you, right? So why the hesitation, right? And I explain to them, like, just saying that, it seems like, why would you ever want that song at your birthday? That's the most boring bit of language ever. But the second we say, happy birthday to you, what do you think? Cake? Presence, party, it's, it's an instant reaction, and that has to do with the melody, right? That's lunar meaning. And so for me, that's the distinction. 
is, is this, this, this difference between solar and lunar meaning. And I get that from Glenn Maxwell. I can't own that. I just teach it. White space and silence. No, uh, I, I would say that solar meaning would be everything that you can interpret, right? The, the things that are on the surface. And lunar meaning is going to be the thing that's hard to define. That's um, the, you know, the reason why you might remember a line two days from what we read um, and can't remember the name of the poem, right? It's the magic, right? Yeah, it's the magic of the poem. It's a little esoteric, but read good, on poetry, read it. You know, it, it can help explain it better than I just paraphrased. No, I feel a little bad uh, cutting this off, but um, I want to make sure people have time to buy books and stuff. So, um, yeah, that was one of the most thoughtful Q&A sessions that I've ever heard. And I just want to thank all three of these poets. They're all fantastic, and I really enjoyed tonight, and I'm sure everyone else did. And I want to tell everyone that we have have books for um, Rebecca and John on sale, and we have copies of the Little Patuxent Review, of which Stephen is... The editor in the back, and everything is just ten dollars. It's a steal, so um, please take something <laughs> home with you. And also, um, please, if you could take a minute and fill out um, an evaluation um, of, of the program. Those are on the that table in the back. And if you could sign up for our um, email list, um, we can. Uh, we like. We'd love to have you come back for other programs. But um, please um, join me in thanking our poets. Thank you.